Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. We're doing a couple of episodes here where we're really getting into the idea of genetic memory, uh, which is the, uh, the, the snazzier way of looking at it. If you want to get really technical, we are going to be talking about epigenetics. Don't be scared off by that. Um, I understand the temptation to be scared off by it because I've written about epigenetics before, and uh, and it can be, in a way, a very dense topic because you are getting down to um, how the, the genome corresponds to the phenotype, how the, the contents of our genes is expressed. The phenotype is the expression of our mm-hmm. genes. Um, so you, you, we can get a bit technical when you get into that. But ultimately, we are talking about how the secrets written in our cells, how those materialize as the person we are, both in terms of our, uh, you know, our, our, our body and in terms of our, our mind. Uh, and we ultimately really get into the conversation about nature and nurture concerning animals and humans. So we're splitting it up. We have this first episode about the animals. It's often a little easier to, to look at, the, the, at something as, uh, as complex as this with the animals first, and certainly that's where... Most of the experiments are, going, are taking place. And then after that, we'll get into uh, the human realm and the, the, the various human ramifications when we complicate things with all of our human baggage. Yeah, the idea here is we want to recast our ideas about evolution and also disease and how mm-hmm. we can game phenotypes, the expression of these genes, uh, for for the better, really. And in order to really get into this discussion, we have to talk about this guy named Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, or jean yeah, 18th century French scientist and naturalist. And uh, he had some uh, some very interesting ideas about how animals change over time, essentially about evolution. And his most cited example is that of the giraffes. Mm-hmm. He argued that, okay, you look at a giraffe. Why does a giraffe have a long neck? Well, Darwin's answer would be that there are all these various mutations over time, and some of those mutations involved longer necks. And since the the longer necks were a better survival adaptation, those were the ones that survived and flourished, while the the mutations with the shorter necks didn't pan out so well. Right. So longer neck naturally selected for taking a long time to be selected, right? Right. We're not just talking about one or two generations. Lamarck's idea, though, is that you have this giraffe. Imagine this short-necked giraffe, and he looks up, or she looks up at the, um, we'll call her Cindy, looks up at at the fruit in the tree. Cindy. Yeah, Cindy. Okay. Cindy and Cindy's and her cohorts have already eaten all the low-hanging fruit. They want the high-hanging fruit, right? Mm-hmm. They want to reach up higher. So she's straining her neck. <laughs> she's looking up there. I want to eat the, those top fruit. Mm-hmm. And then Cindy's offspring have the same desire, and uh, the offspring after that. There's this uh, there's this need to reach the the higher hanging fruit from generation to generation, and from generation to generation, the neck longings. Is that, mm, yeah. is that the verb longings? It lengthens. lengthens. It lengthens. What yes. Is, didn't have enough coffee this morning. Longings. So already I'm thinking about Cindy from Brady Bunch. Okay. Wisping yeah. her desires to, to reach the foliage. Her neck um, lengthening. Right. And then her offspring longening. all lisping their desire to reach the foliage too and getting there because here's Lamarck's deal. In his view, some giraffes manage to stretch their necks over out over the course of their lifetime, giving them an advantage over other giraffes which then what we're talking about is passing on to their children. This is a really quick acquisition of traits here. And this is uh, really what the story comes down to, acquiring traits versus genetic mutations. Now, was Lamarck right 
when he was talking about these drops? Well, for a while, no. For <laughs> he was dead wrong in this yeah. example. Yeah, I mean, he was pretty much, this was considered the, the, the archaic idea, mm-hmm. and, well, not archaic, but uh, an outdated idea that was, that was, uh, that was far uh, outperformed by Darwin's theory of evolution. So Darwin's theory becomes the predominant way that we make sense of these uh, changes over time. But it does turn out that Lamarck was on to something. Um, and his, you know, his theory was dismissed for a long time as malarkey. You like how I did that? Lamarck, mm-hmm. La- malarkey? Yeah. Lamarck and malarkey. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but when epigenetics really came onto the scene um, in the 70s and more lately in the last 10 years, people have been looking at Lamarckian evolution again because our better understanding of epigenetics makes what he was talking about possible. So epigenetics. Okay. You have genetics with the genome, okay? Mm-hmm. And then you have this thing called epigenetics, which literally means uh, in addition to genetics. Um, and this exists, and these changes exist between the genome and the phenotype. Now, I like to think of this in terms of video games. It works for me. It'll work for some of you guys. Um, think of a flight simulator, okay? You you put, you know, load a flight simulator up on the computer, right? And uh, And you can go in there and you pretend to fly this airplane. Now, if you go in there, you go into the settings for this particular game. You can alter the realism of of the flight experience. Okay, so think of it. Think of it this way: the the game engine, the game itself. This is the genome. Mm-hmm. Your actual game playing experience is the phenotype, mm-hmm. the expression. Right, and in between there, you have epigenetics. You have the settings uh, menu. Where you can, where you can click on or click off all these little things. Like, oh, you don't want planes to be able to collide in midair. You don't want, uh, to ever run out of fuel. You want, you know, unlimited, uh, ammo, whatever. You can adjust those settings to have any, anywhere between a highly realistic flight simulation and an arcade shoot 'em up, mm-hmm. depending on how those settings are gamed. And so with an organism, you see a very similar thing. You have the, you have the genome, mm-hmm. which says this is what the the organism is going to be like. This is what the phenotype is going to be. This is what the experience, the game experience that we live every day is going to consist of. And then you have all these various settings in between. These ways, these these epigenetic changes that affect the way that the genes are expressed. That's right, because at the heart of epigenetics is really the study of these changes in gene activity that don't involve alterations to the genetic code, right? But they still get passed down to at least one successive generation. So again, think about the flight simulator that you just talked about. And think about, um, let me see, let's think about the genome as the hardware and the epigenome as the software. Right. Okay, so you can load Windows if you want on your Mac. Okay, think about it that way. So think now about this epigenome, that extracellular material that is sitting on top of the genome. And it's these epigenetic marks or proteins that tell your genes to switch on or off. And it's through epigenetic marks that environmental factors like diet, stress, and prenatal nutrition can make Mm -hmm. an imprint on those genes that are passed on from one generation to the next. So we're we're talking about this because this is really amazing stuff. Because what you can do is you could... You can impact your your future offspring in a very significant way without changing your own DNA. Yeah, and we essentially see Lamarckian evolution return in this, or some semblance of the idea, mm-hmm. only we call it transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. So it's the settings that uh, end up uh, being put in place 
in one generation passing on to subsequent generations. Um, so it's like, you know, a father had the realism settings on his uh, flight simulator set uh, to about 50%, and then that same, those same settings pass on to the offspring, even if, uh, you know, they're in a more arcade culture. I'm kind of stretching the metaphor, but I think you get what I'm saying. <laughs> All right, so you're probably saying, well, how in the world does this happen anyway? What is the mechanism for delivering these changes? And that is something called DNA methylation. Okay, so that's how you game gene expression, the phenotype, how a gene is expressed, turned on or off in an epigenome. So it takes only the addition of a methyl group to change an epigenome, and a methyl group is a basic unit in organic chemistry. We're talking one carbon atom attached to three hydrogen atoms. And when a methyl group attached to a specific spot on a gene... This is what we call DNA methylation, Mm -hmm. and it changes that gene's expression, turning it on and off, dampening it, making it louder. The choices are all there, right? So think of methylation as chemical bundles that enzymes hitch a ride to DNA on, and then they have the, the ability to manipulate genes. You with me here? I'm with you. All right. You guys out there with us? Um, and the methylization patterns can be affected by, again, external environment and then get passed on to offspring because they are maintained through cell division. Yeah, they can change drastically in the course of a lifetime, but they can also, as we'll discuss, they can be set uh, permanently during embryo development. So it depends on various factors and that affect the distribution of methyl groups. So we have an example here of... Um, one sort of DNA methyl- methylation in process in nature, and this is with mice. This is in a 2003 Duke University study by oncologist Randy Jurdle and one of his postdoc students, Robert Waterland. They tinkered with epigenetics using mice with a uniquely regulated agouti gene. Okay, so this agouti gene gives mice yellow coats and propensity for obesity and diabetes when expressed continuously. Yeah. So what did they do to to these mice? Well, they gave them a they gave one group of them a diet rich in vitamin B. So we're talking about folic acid and, and B12. Another group they did nothing to. What they found is that the vitamin B acted as methyl donors. They caused methyl groups to attach more free, frequently to that agouti gene essentially dampening it, turning it off, altering its expression. So without even messing with the DNA, what happened is that those mice with the agouti gene produced healthy offspring that had brown coats, they were normal weight, and they were not prone to diabetes just with this one aspect of nutrition. Hmm. There's another really cool example that uh, is often cited involving water fleas. Uh, In a predator-heavy environment, the creatures develop these large defensive spines on their bodies, all right, because the, the world has become dangerous, so they they, they load up, you know, they mm-hmm. develop these spikes. It's a harsh world, so they, they, they grow the weapons they need to defend themselves. And then the trait will pass on to the offspring, uh, even if those offspring are raised in a predator-free setting. So it's another example of, to personify evolution a bit uh, here and, and personify genetic uh, expression, the, flea, the water flea's body is saying, all right, it's a, it's, a, it's a bad world. Let's grow these spines, and then the, the offspring is going to be born into what can only be presumed to be a bad environment as well, so it better have the spines right out of the gate. Yeah, so, I mean, if Lamarck was alive today, he would say, who's laughing now, right? Yeah. You know, it's correct in some sense. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to talk about some very cool examples of this in roundworms and uh, mice and rats. Okay, we're back. Uh, 
we're talking about epigenetics. We're talking about uh, gene expression. In a large sense, we're talking about nature and nurture and how these the, these different uh, uh, genetic factors and different environmental factors affect who and what an organism happens to be in life. So uh, we're looking at animals in this uh, episode. In the next episode, we'll get into humans. Uh, we're talking about a lot of the different organisms that we experiment on and that we analyze and attempt to understand epigenetics better. And this brings us, of course, to the roundworm. Yeah, this, uh, these roundworms are of great interest to researchers because it turns out that they have a built-in immunity to viruses, or rather they can cultivate this built-in immunity. So researchers at Columbia University found that these roundworms were able to develop a resistance to a virus, and then they were able to pass along that immunity for successive generations. Um, according to an io9 article, they do this through RNA interference, or RNAi. And this process is used by cells to mute certain genes and is often used to beat back viruses and other threats to the genome. This is really cool. This is like a defense system right here sitting outside your, your genome. Um, RNAi destroys messenger RNA or mRNA, which is really important here because that's what's needed to communicate with various genes. So without their mRNA, genes basically shut down and become inactive. Yeah, and it was particularly interesting, this study, uh 2011 Columbia University study because they set it up so that uh, the roundworms couldn't gain immunity in the Darwinian fashion. Like they oh, had, right. they had to. to uh, it, it was it was Lamarck or nothing mm-hmm. uh, if if this was going to happen. And they did, and they actually observed this uh, transgenerational uh, process. So what's really cool here is that the researchers found that even a hundred generations after the initial effect, infection, the roundworms still carry the immunity acquired by their distant ancestor. Yeah. Now, granted, 100 generations is a little different in a roundworm than in a human, but still, uh, you can definitely see the survival advantage in ensuring that uh, subsequent generations benefit from the same protection against uh, a, a viral enemy that's still out there. Well, and you can also see why researchers would be chomping at the bit to study this more, because how could you game this for humans, right? Right. What what sort of defense system could we uh, create for ourselves, if possible? Mm -hmm. So, of course, that leads to more tinkering there. Um, And speaking of tinkering and uh, studies, experiments, we will have to, of course, go back to mice. So, yeah, there was a Tufts University School of Medicine study in 2009, and what they did is they uh, took some mice that they genetically engineered to have memory problems, and then they raised them in uh, an enriched environment. So mm-hmm. this is an environment full of toys and exercise, social interaction, uh, you know, so like working at Google or something for these, uh, these poor <laughs> mice. Uh, and they did this for two weeks during the adolescence for these, for these animals, and they found that the animal's memory improved. Uh, and, and granted, this is expected to a certain degree because we know that enrichment uh, has been shown to boost brain function. Mm-hmm. That's why you you want to enrich young children. You want to enrich the lives of indoor pets. I mean, it's it's that's what enrichment is about. That's why we seek out knowledge as we're doing right now, yeah. right? Uh, but what they found specifically is that the the memory gene here that carried the mutation is called RASGRF. Those are the genes that regulate a signaling pathway that's involved in brain cell communication. So that's what was improved here. But the coolest thing is that the next generation, even though they had this gene, they had this mutated gene, they had better memory. So again, what we saw here is that DNA methylation process occurring, dampening the gene Mm -hmm. for the next generation. So we're not going to keep a running score 
for the the nature versus nurture battle, but this one would certainly be a victory for for nurture. So yeah, Tufts University neuroscientist Larry Fogg had said that a, stri- a striking feature of the study is that enrichment took place during pre-adolescence, months before the mice were even fertile. Yet the effect reached into the next generation. So that was surprising, and we'll talk a little a bit about that more with humans. Right. Um, but we know that when um, when an organism is going through its prenatal period that what the mother does can affect it. But what this is telling us here is that even before the mice were able to reproduce, that was affecting the genes of their eventual offspring. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense, again, when you strip down all of our uh, human expectations of, of life and get down to the, the basic genetic mission of any organism to spread its genes and mm-hmm. pass it on to the offspring. Like, right out of the gate, that is what it is here on Earth to do. So we look at another aspect here of memory, and this is called long-term potentiation. And again, we look at it in mice, and uh, Larry Fogg's team did a secondary study on this. The same research group looked at this. They wanted to look at LPT, long-term potentiation. Uh, LPT strengthens communication between neurons, and it increases memory. So again, they had mice with a genetically faulty LPT expression. Mm-hmm. And these, uh, this LPT was essentially fixed again when they were put in an enriched environment. So, of course, what do we see happen with offspring? They turned out better. Even, and this is the, the crazy part, the pups demonstrated this improve, the same improved mental process even when they were raised by memory-deficient mice uh, that had never had any of the, these enrich- enrichment benefits. So in this, you kind of see uh, a little bit of the, like, the victory, maybe not of, of nature, but of nurtured nature. So a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Both of them are definitely entangled here. Yeah. But again, the, the big news here is that, um, that this gene was switched off. It yeah, was gained. We fixed it in one generation through enrichment. And then bad parenting in the next generation didn't just automatically turn it off. Yeah. So it's, uh, it, it shows that it's a little more complicated than that and also a little more foolproof. Now, yeah. yeah. Now, these are all touchy-feely examples, right? Because we're improving things. Yes. What? Yeah. What if you're a researcher and you want to see the opposite? You want to see what happens when you have rats that are abused, um, that are raised by stressed mothers that neglect and physically abuse their offspring. Um, what will those offspring show in their epigenetic modifications? Well, sadly, it showed that the. Uh the abused mice grew to be poor mothers as well and appeared to pass down the same epigenetic changes to their offspring, which, you know, closely mirrors sort of the expected cycles that one sees, uh, you know, even in humans. Yeah, and the twist here, too, is that the offspring um, of the abusive mothers was then raised by healthy mothers. And although that did help with some of some of their behavior, uh, it, did, it did not dampen... Um, the expression of that behavior as the other DNA methylation did right. in, in the other scene that we saw with mice. So it it helped, but it did not fix it. Yeah, and, and it again underlines that we're talking about a complex interaction of nurture and nature, uh, that it's it's not just, oh, well, nature's going to win out in this case and nurture's going to win out in the other. It's it, Epigenetics is a, is a little more involved. And I think that, you know, that's that's the idea that you carry away from this is that it's not just one or the other. It's not just nature versus nurture. It is definitely a nuance of both. But it's also not just 
Darwinian evolution versus Lamarckian evolution. Yeah. These also work in tandem because we're still living in a Darwinian world. Mm-hmm. We just have some Lamarckian expression. Yeah, there are various ways that our genes can be expressed in the final phenotype, and a lot of that is, de- is determined by environment, by the way we're brought up, by just whatever kind of situation that our bodies are, are, and ourselves are put into. But, of course, this, this uh, is all very exciting because what does this mean for humans when you have such stark examples in nature of the epigenome um, and its ability to to be expressed differently in subsequent generations. What does that mean to us? Well, there are two ways to look at it, and we'll get into more of this in the next podcast. But on one hand, it does give you the option to freak out about every little thing in life. <laughs> True. Uh, in, concerning your own upbringing, the, you know, the, your, your children, uh, your children's children, you can really begin to, to overanalyze every little detail. Also, as we continue to map out the epigenome, it gives us an increased ability to potentially go in there and, and adjust these settings. Uh, as one, potentially as one would the uh, realism settings in a flight simulator, instead of leaving it purely to environmental changes. Yeah, it's really cool is that the Human Epigenome Project, um, just like the Human Genome Project, they are trying to map it um, now that the Genome Project is got done and the um, and the ability to do that is, is um, much more within grasp. The epigenome should be done fairly soon. Yeah. And the kinds of stories that will come out of that will be, I think, of a mind-blowing quality once they sort of parse through everything that they can unravel and everything that unfolds and begin to apply it to us. Yeah, and and figure out what they can turn on and what they can't turn off. I mean, who knows what's in there? Because I've, I've read the, uh, you know, examples of being able to... Um, to, to like toy with chickens so that they're a little more like dinosaurs just by tinkering around with mm-hmm. various epigenetic changes. Um, you know, granted, they they're probably would not be able to go in and just suddenly make spines growing grow out of our our backs. But but we have spoken a good bit about some of the uh, the various um, physiological things that uh, that humans have left behind in their evolution. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I can't help but wonder like which of them are still there. Like the whole. Um, like the spiny penis thing that we discussed. Is oh, that, right, is the that, spikes. Yeah, is yeah. that still on the table? I don't know. I hope Epigenetics not. Epigenetics will answer the question. I hope not. So now I'm just thinking of urban chicken chicken coops in cities with, with uh, different phenotypes expressed. And yeah. Sort of like dinosaur chickens running around. Yeah, little velociraptor chickens, yeah. That's the future, folks. Wrap it up right yeah. there. Yeah, so... Definitely tune in to the next episode because that's going to be the one where we're going to talk about uh, some of the findings uh, involving experiments uh, about humans, about uh, human epigenetics, how these various how these various environmental changes affect uh, the expression of of our of our genomes in the final phenotype, uh, and we'll also do a little pondering to a, a little more uh, a little more philosophical stuff there at the end of that particular episode. So let's call the robot over here and uh, get a little listener mail. Ooh, now this one's pretty exciting. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's, I find it exciting. We heard from uh, Tim. Tim writes in in response to our Nutmeg episode and says, Hi, guys. My name is Tim, and I come from Dutch parents. Wanted to share with you something that I grew up with. My parents and grandparents used to put this stuff in everything. I'm not sure if you can even buy it in the States. They have it sent to them from a friend. It's a mixture of nutmeg and other things. Uh, and to be honest, it's excellent. Wonderful to put in your hot chocolate or over Christmas drinks. Pick some up if you can. And he indeed sent uh, a couple of uh, photographs so that we might uh, describe this product. It is uh, called, well, let's see, the brand is Silvo, mm-hmm. and it's Coic and Sp- 
speculus crudin, and uh, its ingredients appear to be cannel, crudnagellin, oh, crudnagellin, newt musket, gimberwort, oh, cardamom, which is maybe cardamom, yeah, yeah, and uh, and white pepper. So, um, which one of those was nutmeg? Newt um, muscat, you think is nutmeg? That's what I Dutch? was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the the crazy thing about that is, uh, and why he says that he's not even sure if that you could buy that stateside, is because that is a massive amount of nutmeg. It's like a deodorant stick full of yeah. <laughs> nutmeg. And uh, as we know, uh, nutmeg has hallucinary uh, or hallucinogenic properties when ingested in large quantities. Yeah. So, I don't know. That stuff on the street could fetch quite, quite a dime. Well, but, you know, as we discussed... Or should that, penny, because remember, we talked about it. It's not really... The consensus was that it's not really worth anybody's time. No, no, no. Not, not, not in not, large quantities. Mm-mm. In large quantities, it's a nightmare and it's awful. But, of course, in small quantities, on a regular basis, nutmeg has a number of positive health benefits. Lovely on your hot cocoa or latte. I've been having it on my coffee every morning, pretty much since we did that episode. Fancy. Because I like nutmeg, and, I'm, and if there's any even remote chance that I'll have a health benefit from it, then why not? Sure. I even had a, a nutmeg-infused root beer the other night, and it was great. Did you brew the root beer yourself? No, no. It was like some uh, brand, like they have a special Bavarian nutmeg version of their root beer that you get in a big... They have it at the, that little market near your house, so check it out. All right. I will. All right. Here's one from Trevor. Trevor writes in and says, hello. I live in a tw- on a 25-foot sailboat near downtown Seattle, more specifically Lake Union. I don't have cable or Internet, and I rely on reading books and listening to your podcasts, st- uh, streamed through Stitcher on my iPhone for entertainment. I've avoided cabin fever and seasonal depression thanks to the information and knowledge I've gained through your podcast. Please continue your work because it's keeping me sane and informed, most importantly, sane. That that was a lovely email to, to get there, because, um, or actually that was on Facebook, I think, because uh, I, I, it, in, in my job, in our job, we're kind of shackled to the Internet somewhat. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I know that I sometimes feel like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be able to just really step away from the Internet a bit, which I don't think I've really done in uh, close to a decade now. Well, Trevor is definitely living my dream. I'm not kidding. Yeah. I mean, I've always wanted to live, and this is going to sound weird, but on a boat in a major city so that you would have access to everything that a city provides, but you could just take off whenever. And here's a little weird thing is that I have had this fantasy in my mind for so many years that I mentally wanted to prepare myself, and I would only use a paring knife because I figured that if I ever lived in a boat and used the kitchen, I would only have one knife. Oh, wow. You've been training for this for years and i didn't realize to what extent until my husband who is always like why do why there there's a bevy of knives (laughs) and i finally fessed up i was like because one day i might live on a boat and i have to get used to just this one knife oh wow i I have to admit that early on i i I never really wanted that for myself Mm -hmm. but occasionally uh, i'll read a book uh, you know that has someone living on a boat like in uh, in sutry by Cormac mccarthy he lives on a boat and i was kind of attracted to that and it made me think back, like, why do I have this sort of romantic idea about living on a, a boat that never goes anywhere? And it's because of that <laughs> the Highlander TV show. Because in the Highlander TV show, McLeod, um, whichever his first name was in that show, because it was different. Connor McLeod? Eh. Connell McLeod? I don't know. But he lived uh, He lived on a boat that was uh, that was there in Paris, I think. And so oh, he was yeah. always coming, you know, and he's yeah. this, this brooding loner with a samurai sword that lives on a boat in Paris. And I was like, that looks like the life for me. Amsterdam, another place I would like to yeah. be boat-bound. I wonder how many of you guys have 
these boat fantasies too. Maybe this is just particular to us. I know I did get to go down the Thames. Uh, my wife and I, um, uh, a friend of hers that she had, um, she knew over the internet when we traveled to London years ago, and we uh, he he had a, had a canal boat, and so we we got to go go down the Thames a, a bit on that, and that was delightful. And and when we spent the night in it too, so I, I could I could see where one would really fall in love with it. Maybe not so much the chemical toilet. But uh, uh, right, right. Yeah, but the yeah. rest of it is fine. Yeah. Well, thanks, Trevor, for writing in. Well, if you guys would like to share something with us, be it about epigenetics, be it about chemical toilets on your romantic boat, or be it about um, nutmeg, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. We are stuff to blow your mind on both of those, and uh, and we also have a Twitter account where we use the handle Blow the Mind. And eh, there's some a little bit of crossover. We're going to promote the show on all of those uh, feeds, but then there's there's always going to be something on the Twitter that's not on the Facebook. There's going to be stuff on the Tumblr that's not uh, not uh, used on the other uh, websites. So uh, so check them all out. They're all pretty cool. Find the one that fits your your frame of mind best. And some people are more Twitter people, and then some people are more won over by the the flashiness of Tumblr. So. You make a nice Tumblr, too, by the way. I, I enjoy the Tumblr. I've been really digging it. So Yeah, yeah. it's very cool. Um, you can also send us a line by emailing us at blowthemind@discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 